This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, July 2nd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... We were going down, our caseload was dropping, and we lost our minds. And we're paying for it now. State officials express concern over rising COVID cases and ask residents to do their part. And the 1894 flag is lowered from above the Capitol for the final time. Then in today's book club, how the siege at Vicksburg sealed the fate of the Confederacy. Plus, fireworks safety for the Independence Day weekend. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi has seen over 2,000 new cases of COVID-19 this week, corresponding with a trend of rising cases across the nation. In addition to cases, hospitalizations continue to rise. During a press briefing yesterday, Governor Tate Reeves shared his concerns over the viability of the health care system. I want to be very very clear. Our health care system is at risk. This is not a risk that is a long-term threat. This is a risk that is before us, if not now, very, very, very soon. Dr. Dobbs and I have met multiple times over the last 10 days. His warnings to the public and to us, have been very graphic, and I believe them. To my fellow Mississippians, we all need to believe them. Our plan in Mississippi has been for weeks to fully reopen by July the 1st. That is today. That is not happening. Our reopening is paused And we're considering what we must do going forward. That was not an easy call. I see, I hear, and I know the cost that these measures carry. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs has been warning on the impending risks to the system. He says the virus causes a strain on hospitals because severe cases can often need weeks of care. And one of the things that's so important to understand about this um, is co- coronavirus causes severe lung damage. And so and, and specifically it causes this thing called um, ARDS, which you may have heard of, um, respiratory distress syndrome. And the lungs scar, are full of fluid, and don't function properly. And so part of the process is it takes weeks and weeks of care to support someone long enough so their body can recover. But so many bad things happen in that, you know, the kidneys fail, people have strokes, um, infections, all that sort of thing. And so it's a, real, it's a real challenge. So having someone who's that sick for so long eats up ICU bed for that period of time, and it makes that capacity issue so much more acute. And I think that gets to the point. People who go in the hospital for coronavirus, it's not a short stay. Um, you know, we've seen, you know, 8, 12 weeks is not uncommon for a coronavirus. 
the current rise in cases is attributed to widespread community transmission. Dobbs says the highest increase in cases are occurring in more populated areas of the state where socializing is more likely. He says that while the highest increase is in younger demographics, cases in every age group is on the rise. If we consider the trends that we've been witnessing, we have seen, as we've discussed before, a shift towards a younger age group. The, the age group with the most number of new cases is going to be between 20 and 29. Even though that group has seen the most dramatic increase in new cases, every age group is seeing new increases in cases. It's across the board, but it's just that much more extreme within our young folks. And what we've seen time after time, time and time again, is it's social activity. It's people getting in the community. This is people out and about in their hometowns picking it up from things that normally would be perfectly innocent and safe. But in the setting of a pandemic, these are things that cannot be done safely. Governor Reeves says mandates and shutdowns alone will not stop the virus and continues to urge Mississippians to take the extra effort to protect themselves and their communities. I also realize that there is no silver bullet. A shutdown did not save us. Testing hasn't and won't save us. More ventilators don't save us. Shelter in place doesn't save us. Mask mandates don't save us. Every single one of those measures, however, is a piece of the offense. The only chance we have is for all of us to try. The only chance we have to slow the spread is for all of us to take the extra effort. Dr. Dobbs agrees a collective response is what's needed to return to a sense of normalcy. That's one of the reasons why it's so important that we collectively respond. If you're a young person and you're not worried about dying, but you're going out, you're keeping somebody from visiting their grandmother in the nursing home because we can't open it up to visitation. You're keeping someone to, from going to New York to see someone who's ill, a family member, because now they have to quarantine when they get into New York City. Everything has consequences. And um, it's really lamentable that now in Mississippi we had an opportunity at the end of May. We were going down. Our caseload was dropping. Our R value, our reproductive rate, was less than one. And we lost our minds. And we're paying for it now. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really disturbed um, but not surprised and I hope there's not other shoes to drop you know but we're all connected what's one person does affects everyone the same thing with a mask you know me not wearing a mask if I'm asymptomatic transmitting it's not about me it's about everybody and I know there's nobody more generous no people more generous in Mississippi so let's be generous to our neighbors and do these simple things that are going to help us live more normal lives Yesterday's press conference was the first time Governor Reeves appeared publicly since the bill to remove the state flag was passed and signed. He likened the weeks leading up to the move a difficult family conversation and spoke to those who feared a flag change might lead to the removal of monuments. We have had uh, a very difficult conversation over the last several weeks regarding our flag. Uh, it is a conversation that was very hard, but it was a conversation uh, amongst family. And I believe that family conversations can often uh, be hard. Uh, but the fact is, many of the people who were adamantly opposed to changing 
the flag were less so because of the flag itself, but more so because of the, what they believed to be the slippery slope of trying to erase our nation's history. And, and I will tell you uh, that when, when I have talked to individual Mississippians, and I have done it a lot, um, I made the decisions that I have made in the last 10 days because I've heard Mississippians talk. Uh, I've heard their hurt. Uh, I've heard what they see when they look uh, at our at our current uh, or what was our current symbols, and so. But but I will tell you that I don't believe and I reject the notion that we ought to remove monuments um, at this point in time. Leaders of the legislature were on hand at the Capitol for the final lowering of the 1894 flag that flies above the grounds. During a brief ceremony, flags were presented to Reuben Anderson, president of the board at the Department of Archives and History. Anderson was also the first black judge to serve on the Mississippi Supreme Court. House Speaker Philip Gunn called the moment historic. This is a historic occasion upon which we should reflect and we should look forward. We cannot know where we're going unless we remember where we have been. Today we come to terms with our past and we look to our future. We have much to be proud of and much to reckon with. This flag has flown over our best and our worst. Some flew it, uh, some flew it over their bravery to defend their homeland. And for others it's been a shadow over their struggle to be free. But every Mississippian alive today has lived under this flag. And it means different things to different people. But regardless of how you view this flag, you are a Mississippian. Let us remember we have a common history and a common future. We rise or fall together. We look forward to a new flag that will recognize our trust in God who brought us to this very moment here today. A new flag that takes the best of our traditions and moves them into the future. A new flag that lives up to our pledge for liberty and justice for all. A new flag that Mississippians can be proud of. This is not an end, but it is a beginning. Now we turn to a new chapter in our state's history. Let us walk into the future together. And if we do that, there's no limit to what we can achieve. The flags will be displayed and archived at the two Mississippi museums. Pamela Jr., executive director of the museums, said the flags will help tell Mississippi's story. I'm thinking about people like my ancestors, Fannie Lou Hamer, Mega Evers, the Charleston Nine, and all the names. But it's the history that I am so excited. The complex stories that we'll be telling in the two Mississippi museums where the flag belongs. It goes back to the Civil War. We talk about the Civil Rights Movement, Reconstruction. There's just so many labels that go under the uh, flag. So we're ready to tell the stories. We're ready to interpret it. It's so important for our children because when you think about the Civil War, you think about Robert E. Lee who said we need to retire this flag because it's going to show divisiveness. So 126 years later, we're still talking about the same thing. So this is an amazing time for the state of Mississippi that we're showing the truth because these museums have been telling the truth all the time. 
Coming up in today's book club, how the siege at Vicksburg sealed the fate of the Confederacy. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The battle at Gettysburg is often cited as the Civil War's most important battle, but it was Vicksburg that ultimately sealed the fate of the Confederacy. In his book, Vicksburg, author and historian Donald L. Miller chronicles the warfare in all of its phases, both land and water, the siege, the assault, the bombardment, sickness, captivity, and famine. Grant comes across the river and he wins five major battles on his way to Vicksburg. It's kind of a, a forced march through the state. He captures Jackson, and in 18 days he marches 200 miles, wins five battles for them in just six days, and then besieges the city. And the Confederates hold on for 47 days. But while they're holding on, Grant's armies are pillaging and burning plantations, farms, capturing slaves all around Mississippi. So it was a kind of an irony. The longer the Confederates held Vicksburg, the greater they lost, really their whole way of life. You might understand that in Mississippi, there is attention paid to the people of Vicksburg who were under siege for 47 days and who went hungry and suffered as a result. Does your book focus on that at all? I try to give equal coverage to both sides. I not only cover the boys on the line. I mean, these guys had it tough. They had no protection, uh, no tents, no shelters, and no relief, uh, no reinforcements. So they slept on their guns through scorching heat, rainstorms, things like that. They're low on ammunition for a while. They solved that problem, and the real problem was hunger. And inside the city, I mean, Grant had them cornered. Really, there was no way to get out of the city, and he bombarded the city. Unlike Sherman, who evacuated Atlanta before he bombed it, uh, Grant didn't allow the evacuation of women and children. And the bombing is pretty indiscriminate. They're throwing these gigantic mortars into the city, uh, big 220-pound shells, and they're aiming directly at churches and homes and anything. It's kind of like saturation bombing in World War II, only because Vicksburg people had dug caves into the sides of those soft lowest soil hills. They were protected from a lot of this fire. And also you could see these mortars coming. They had a long fuse. They went way high in the sky like fireworks, and then they fell. So casualties were minimal, but physical damage was tremendous. The campaign that Grant originally launched was supposed to be done in an orderly fashion, and the troops were prohibited from entering homes and, and, and burning private households and things like that. But the troops got out of control. They began to see that even those who weren't abolitionists, that slavery was hurting them, that it was releasing Southern boys to fight. Slaves were building fortifications. The cotton they grew was sold and to buy ammunition. So whether abolitionists or not, they're out to free slaves, and they do that in tremendous numbers. And in addition, there's a lot of resentment toward the South for seceding from the Union. Why are we down here from Wisconsin? They kind of seceded. We wouldn't be here if they hadn't. 
with our lives on the line and our families back in Iowa. That turns into indignation, and and you get an awful lot of indiscriminate pillage. Where they're actually entering homes, stealing private garments from women's you know, drawers, uh, ripping earrings off the ears of women, some of the nastiest of the Yankee soldiers. So they get out of control. Later on, this becomes official U.S. policy, where Grant didn't want his men enticing blacks into their lines. He didn't know how to handle them. After a while, Lincoln orders him to do that and also to recruit black males for military service. So by the end of the campaign, Grant has freed over 100,000 slaves in in the Mississippi Valley, and he's put 26,000 of them in Union Blue. There was a caption on one of the pictures in the book that said that Mississippi slaves found freedom behind the lines of Grant's army. So did slaves literally follow the troops? Yes, they would, wherever Grant's army moved in Mississippi. For example, the first time Grant invades Mississippi is in late 1862. Wherever he goes, there's a lot of evacuation. Confederate families become refugees, and they take their families and their best slaves, the most productive slaves, to Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana. It's easier for a lot of the older slaves to escape to the Union lines. And even in areas where there hadn't been evacuation, uh, they find their way behind Union lines. And once behind those lines, Congress had passed legislation in the summer of 62 that said if a slave came behind the Union lines, he was free and forever free and couldn't be returned to his or her master. And slaves know this. And this is even before the Emancipation Proclamation. And the Emancipation Proclamation, of course, opens this wide open because it only frees slaves in the South. It would like saying, you know, Grant doesn't free the slaves in his own country as it were, at the time, the United States. Uh, He left slaves in border states like uh, Missouri, Delaware. Uh, Slavery was intact, but he frees all slaves in states that are in rebellion against the Union. Donald L. Miller is the author of Vicksburg Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy. Thank you very much for sharing some of the highlights with us. Thank you for the time. Coming up, fireworks safety for the Independence Day weekend. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The coronavirus pandemic has shut down many Independence Day celebrations across the country. State Fire Marshal Mike Cheney thinks that could lead to more people celebrating with fireworks at home and in their communities. He joins us to discuss safety when dealing with fireworks this 4th of July weekend. Well, the dynamics change when you uh, have a cancellation of public firework displays. Most people will buy fireworks at a usually at an approved fireworks stand, which are pretty well regulated in our state. And they will use those fireworks uh, in their backyard or with their neighbors. And with coronavirus uh, pandemic in effect right now, we're concerned about several things. One, that the safety of children could be at risk if people do not understand how to use fireworks. So we, we point out to them that something as simple as a sparkler 
uh, can reach temperatures in excess of 1,200 degrees. Some of them can go as high as 1,800 degrees, and if you uh, actually know a little bit about chemistry, that's hot enough to melt gold. That's pretty pretty hot. So what we try to do is get the message out to say to folks, observe the local laws, and above all, use common sense. Always keep a bucket of water uh, handy and a garden hose that you can uh, immediately squirt with if you have to use it. I never, ever buy unapproved fireworks. I want to ask you about that. Let me, firework stands, you said they're regulated. Do they have a license to sell? Is there something posted or need to be posted so people know they're buying a legitimate product? All the fireworks you will have, if you buy from someone that's got one of these big tents, they have actually have a label on them that they're UL approved or approved. And I forget the, the exact lettering that's on them. Uh, Karen, but the idea is that you buy from somebody reputable. Never, ever buy fireworks that are sold under the table. They're uh, regulated by most local law enforcement people, and that includes sheriff's departments as well as city and municipal police. And many municipalities prohibit fireworks from being shot within city limits. so you just got to observe the laws. I, I, think that that, I think that most cities have ordinances, and yet counties, uh, you know, out in the country, maybe not as much. Not as much. And, what, and we've encouraged that. That goes back to a lot of things that we've done uh, to try to protect citizens, and that includes things like building codes, which has some regulation for fireworks in them. But only about a third of the counties in Mississippi have any regulations where they will regulate fireworks uh, in the county. Um so it's up to the local sheriff's department uh, to try to regulate and, and use common sense. And, you, and it's things like you never point a bottle rocket at another person, even as a joke. If you shoot them close to a house, you've got to be certain they go away from a house. Uh, a bottle rocket can go up and come down and land on a roof, an asphalt roof, and if it's still burning or hot, you may set the house on fire. We've had cases of that happening in Mississippi. Are there fireworks that are safer than others? I mean, you know, we all think of sparklers as being safe, but as you just said, they can cause third-degree burns. What do you recommend? If somebody wants to shoot off their own fireworks, are there some that are safer than others? The National Safety Council would tell you the best way to use fireworks is not to buy them at all and let public displays send them off. So we tell parents you only light one item at a time, and you need to understand that you got to get back a safe distance. And we have these uh, whirly missiles that take off on, say, a concrete driveway and go up in the air. Um, Those can hurt you if they go the wrong direction or if they misfire and head towards a group of people. And we've had that happen before. So all we're saying is be very careful. Have adult supervision. Use common sense. And never carry fireworks in your pocket or or use an open lighter or cigarette lighter to try to light the fireworks. Use an approved uh, lighter, and most of these approved lighters are something they glow, and, they, and they, they're slow burning, but they'll light a fuse on fireworks. And they, they're on a little stick uh, that's biodegradable uh, and will burn, and they're safe to use. Is there, an, is there an age group that's most likely to be injured, and what kind of injuries is it mainly burns that kids suffer? It's burns and damage to the hands where they try to throw a firecracker, these little small firecrackers. And uh, those firecrackers, if the fuse ignites the firecracker too quick before it gets out of your hand, 
You can damage your fingers, and most people are, are right-handed. Not everybody's right-handed, but most that are. If you lose that hand, you, you lose some of your ability to serve and take care of yourself until you heal up. So most of it is just not using common sense. Most of the injuries that we see can uh, also occur, uh, occur to the eyes because of uh, flying debris from the fireworks. And we recommend safety glasses to even to a parent that's uh, set in all fireworks in the yard. And the age group that's most affected are usually children from 10 to 16. Good advice. Mike Cheney is Mississippi's insurance commissioner and state fire marshal. Thank you so much. Good advice. Thank you, Karen. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.